3: I don't see any American dream, I see an American nightmare.
2: We never initiate any violence upon anyone, but if anyone attacks us, we reserve the right to defend ourselves. When you're in your own nation, in your own land, you're in a position to get justice. But when you're in another man's country, in another man's land, you have to look to that other man for justice, and you'll never get it.
0: We're nonviolent with people who are nonviolent with us, but we are not nonviolent with anyone who is violent with us. Anytime you beg another man to set you free, you will never be free. We are ready and willing to pay the price that is necessary for freedom. What price are you talking about? The price of freedom is death. Welcome to Make It Plain, where we offer Christian reflections on the words and life of Malcolm X. I'm Philip Holmes. And I'm Taylor Gray.
2: We are your hosts.
0: All right, Taylor. So, like, how's, how's life in the uh, Midwest? You and I have both had a lot going on since we've ended the season. But just give us an update on kind of where you are right now.
2: Yeah, man, I'm I'm trying to get back into a rhythm. Quite honestly, um, you know, I appreciate the the prayers and the you know well wishers from afar who have you know kind of peered into my personal situation with my mom and offered support and encouraging words. It's one of those things where you don't know how you'll respond until something like this happens. And I think I'm learning a lot about myself, learning a lot about the Lord Mm -hmm. and um, just just uh, thankful that he's keeping me from day to day. So, you know, each day is really the perspective that I try to take away is what I learn each day and the strength that he gives me each day. So, yeah, man, the Midwest, uh, just in general, like it's time for fall, you know, so for us, that means it's hoodie season. So I'm happy
0: about that. That's what's up, man. Yeah. uh, Jasmine and I, you know, just had our third son who came about three to four weeks um, Mm -hmm. early. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And we named him uh, Malcolm James. Somebody, one of my buddies the other night was like, oh, brother Malcolm. And I was like, you know what? That might be a good nickname around the house. Uh, One of (laughs) the nicknames. We call him uh, Jamie right now. I have a... um, my oldest brother, his name is Jamie. So even though his mo name is mm. James, after James Baldwin, we uh, okay. call him call him Jamie. But I'm I'm kind of liking brother Malcolm. That that might be his, his nickname, of course. And the Malcolm is after after Malcolm X. So yeah, so you know things have been a little crazy, but you know we've had a lot of just love and support from our church community. My mom has also been super helpful. She had the boys for about a week as Jasmine and you know, I oh. kind of you know, got sleeping schedules and all that stuff, Called up on sleep and all that, but just continue to pray for us because now we're we're in zone defense. And really, while Jasmine's, Jasmine's more so just focusing on the, the star of the household right now, little Malcolm. I'm trying to do my best to, as I transition back to work this week, do the bulk of the work with the boys so that she can really just focus on little Malcolm because he's taking the majority of her time and energy as she's breastfeeding and all that stuff. I mean, many of you I'm sure can imagine what that's like. So just be praying for her as she is sleep deprived more than anybody else in the household. But she's, she's such a good mom. I I hate to see my wife during these seasons, but you also, you know, see the the character and the love and the mother's heart during these seasons as well. And the sacrifices that they make to, Mm -hmm. to make sure baby is taken care of and is, It's, it's difficult. It's it's not easy, especially in these early days.
2: Yes. Peace to mom homes, and you know, holding it down in the new era, the new era of of young Malcolm. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm, ex- <laughs> I'm excited to see how you know the story plays out. The, the story is very early right now, but uh, you know, it's part of the journey. Yeah. So we're here to talk about the
0: Netflix documentary, Who Killed Malcolm X? Now, for those of you who haven't heard of it, this is a documentary that was produced in 2020. And this is, is really a mini series. And it's about this guy whose name is Abdur Rahman. Am I saying that right? I heard it like multiple times during, a, during the interview, but I think it's Rahman. Abdur Rahman Muhammad. And he's a historian, actually a tour guide in Washington, D.C. And, you know, for almost 30 years, he's been investigating the assassination of Malcolm X. There's been a lot of discussion and a lot of controversy surrounding who actually killed Malcolm X. Some people say the FBI, some people say the NYPD, some people say the Nation of Islam. And this is a fascinating documentary because it really explores how really all three of those institutions were to some extent complicit. Malcolm's murder and in the alleged cover-up as well. Those of you might not necessarily be familiar with the assassination of Malcolm X, there were three or four gunmen that were involved and one of them was actually caught at the scene of of the crime and his name is Talmadge Hayer and this brother was basically shot in the leg And apprehended by the crowd, the crowd was basically about to beat him down. Police got him, booked him. Two other men were also arrested later on. But Talmadge, even in court, basically explained that these men were not there; like they were not his partners, and he was adamant about that. But he wouldn't he wouldn't give up the names of the other individuals that were involved, and understandably so to some extent because he would have been putting his life in direct danger. And Mm -hmm. at that time, he probably still thought that what he did was righteous. 12 years later, though, he actually gave the names of the individuals who were guilty, many of them who were still alive. Unfortunately, nothing was done about it. But You know, so so this this conversation that that Taylor and I are about to have is less about necessarily who killed Malcolm. We're going to talk about some of that, but we're going to talk about a lot of the other stuff that was revealed during this documentary that was really fascinating, um, but also disturbing as well. Taylor, talk talk to me about some of your initial thoughts and reactions as you watch this documentary.
2: Well, I mean, I think for me, uh, as well as as you, you know, what's what striking is, you know, some of the, the emotional space that this puts you in, just kind of watching this whole thing unfold. And um, obviously you can view the death of Malcolm X as, you know, kind of this violent tragedy just on the surface level. But when you start to uncover some of the details, of who was complicit, who was involved, who had an investment, to, um, to silence Malcolm for a number of different reasons. And then really just the the aftermath of, you know what folks thought was justified or, or even a justified posture that some people took, not necessarily remorse. Um, you know, it, it, it just puts you in an interesting emotional space. I'll say for me, I was grieved, um, you know, to put it lightly, uh, just grieved to see, so many different forces working together to uh, remove a presence from this earth that, um, you know, at the end of the day was, was shining a light on so many things that we needed to see. And it was, it was not about trying to identify justice or, or, or identify an opportunity for justice. It wasn't about even, you know, maintaining social order necessarily. It was about power. It was about influence. It was about control, and uh, control of the narrative, or whatever you want to say. And uh, there are people who were simply acting the way in the way that they did because they wanted to maintain that, that sense of power and control. Um, and and all of the people who were involved, you know, whether or not they they worked in conjunction with one another, or if they had their own separate interests you know, their their contributions were devastating. And, you know, you have to wonder how God works on the human conscience in the aftermath of something like this. How can you sleep after being involved in this way? And even the brother who was investigating all of this as he was uncovering these details and kudos to him for doing the work and compiling such a thorough investigation and, and making sure that, you know, he he made every effort to be fair in investigating the details. I believe it was fair. I don't think he was on a witch hunt. I think he was just trying to find what was true. And yeah, I agree. In that work, like you you start to you start to see some really interesting things about human nature unfold. Like you know, if I'm if I'm looking at this, you know, we say make it plain as a podcast where we we look at Malcolm X's life and we offer Christian reflections. You know, this is kind of one of those moments where you get to look at uh, the depravity of mankind in a particular way, and you know there are layers to that. You know how and how,
0: and how it transcends, how that depravity transcends culture
2: and ethnicity as well. One thousand percent. One. 000, I mean, I think of a verse in Romans chapter one. You know, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Mm, you know, yep. That like there's there's a direct. Uh, example of that in in a in a real scenario that we get to see like literally play out and be maintained by those who are involved. So I mean, those are those are just some some things that I think about overall. Uh, they they do a deep dive into this. There's episodes. There's I mean, man, the way that you watch these episodes, I can't even imagine. You know, I know I couldn't watch everything in one sitting, but I think you did, Phil. So I I yeah. also like to hear how you how you responded to what you were watching.
0: Yeah, I I was deeply grieved as well. I mean, I was on the verge of tears so many times. I was angry. I was frustrated. I was disappointed because, uh, you know, whether it was the government or whether it was Black people, to watch how they were complicit and unrepentant of their involvement. The arrogance and even the lack of sympathy by one of the NYPD officers as he come offered commentary uh, on it. Those who were alive during that time, I was, I was reminded as I'm kind of watching one of these individuals, uh, and we're going to talk about this during this episode, I couldn't help but compare the Newark community to a lot of what I see in some white Southern communities as it relates to the sins of Jim Crow, racism in the South. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to deal with it. And while this person is still walking around and he's free in the community, let it rest, let it out, just let it go. Just let it go. We don't talk about that. And I'm just like, it's the same same culture. It's the same culture. So, you know, I, I would say, in summary, as I'm thinking about the reason why Malcolm died, Malcolm died because he had integrity. It, yeah. it was his integrity is what got him killed you know episode two the title was a straight man in a cricket game 100 mm-hmm. percent and because there were these individuals who they tried to deflect what what their desire was on Malcolm so Malcolm basically was accused of wanting to be greater than Elijah Muhammad mm-hmm and 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 wanting to get power and wanting to get fame and it's just like Malcolm already had all these things. What are you talking about? Right. He's also was right. already one of the most infamous, infamous men in in the country. And anytime you saw him on camera, he was always pointing to "quote unquote" honorable Elijah Muhammad. Right. He was always. He, he never yes. once. And, and even when you look closer, you know, I, I started watching One Night in Miami again, and there's this depiction that Malcolm was trying to leave the Nation of Islam, and he was trying to get Cassius to start this new organization with him. That's actually not historically factual. Malcolm right, was sure. trying to use this relationship with Cassius in order to get back into the good graces of the Nation of Islam, because I, thought that, I think that he thought that he would be able to reform them so this wasn't even an issue where where he was trying to build his own organization and and move forward uh with Cassius by his side he was actually trying to say listen I'm bringing I'm still valuable to the organization here's what's my peace offering but the problem is is that Malcolm knew too much and yeah. and they also knew that he wasn't going to allow a lot of the corruption that was taking place if something yeah. was to happen to Elijah Muhammad his the Elijah Muhammad's kids knew that Malcolm wasn't going to stand by and just watch that idly.
2: Mm-hmm. which makes him dangerous Made um, him dangerous and,
0: and then and then the FBI and the New York Police Department and all these other vi- individuals also knew that he wasn't going to st- sit by quietly and watch these things happen in society because they knew that he was going after something that was much bigger than what even King King's uh, phase one of what King's dream was. Because people still don't really acknowledge that Malcolm and King were fighting two different battles. I, I never really saw that highlighted. They still were compared as if these were apples to apples. But it, it was it was interesting watching another documentary where, of course, James James Baldwin articulated later on how how these men moved closer to each other by the time of, of the death. And of course, James James Baldwin would would be able to articulate that and see that because he saw what was really going on. Uh, he didn't depend on depend on the press for his opinions of these two men. He knew them both personally. So, but, but yeah, so it it was about this. This was an episode that talks about what happens when crooked men meet or are faced with people of integrity. They are intimidated and they look for ways to entangle or eliminate these individuals, regardless Mm -hmm. of, of any, any wrongdoing on Malcolm's part. And, yeah. and that was devastating to watch.
2: Yeah, man. Yeah. And, and and there were people who had, as you mentioned earlier, it had different interests. Obviously, the U.S. government had an interest in silencing Malcolm from kind of a larger purview of the voice of black people in society and whatever it looked like for empowerment to, to start to manifest or protest in In certain ways that would be disruptive to society. And Malcolm was on that list of you know so-called dangerous Negroes that you know had to be silenced um, for the purposes of control and and suppression of of rights and and ultimately enlightenment or awakening, as they perceived within different Negro movements in society at the time. But the Nation of Islam had a different reason for wanting to si- silence Malcolm. And uh, it's, it's so interesting to, to hear it, you know, articulate from their perspective to uh, have such a disciplined devotion to Elijah Muhammad in such a way to say that this is the means of black empowerment is to literally lift this man up as God and abide by his teachings. You know, and seeing Malcolm as an enemy of Elijah Muhammad and ultimately the Black Muslim movement was to say that Malcolm himself wasn't about Black empowerment or that he wasn't the person who stood for the advancement of Black people and the establishment of Black power in this country. And it's just really interesting to see that view of Malcolm from the inside to say, That, you know, for whatever reason, they thought Malcolm was a person who saw himself as bigger than the movement or bigger than the cause. And, you know, when a dynamic speaker speaks, (laughs) you know, there's an effect. And, you know, by all intents and purposes, Elijah Muhammad wasn't necessarily a dynamic speaker. He gained the momentum that he gained and the movement gained the momentum that they gained because of Malcolm's voice. Largely due to Malcolm's voice, and because of the ways that they had integrated into society with business and an intimidating presence. You know, I don't want to say militaristic, but they were prepared to fight, they were prepared to defend themselves. And Malcolm gave shape and voice to everything that the movement represented in a way that they had not experienced. So their investment in silencing him was ultimately in devotion to Elijah Muhammad. And what that meant to them was. This was the um, expression of black empowerment that had to be preserved. And Malcolm had to die in order for that to be preserved. So it just it was just interesting to see how two motivations ended up meeting at some sort of moment of agreement to take out Malcolm and say like, we've got to silence this brother because he's too powerful for reasons that will ultimately uh, upend our cause, or our our control or our power structures that we've set up? I, I do have another another reflection. It's it's kind of another opportunity for us to to um to kind of investigate <laughs> maybe some of our religious quote unquote power structures. Um, you know, because you know there may be some similarities in the way that Elijah Muhammad. Conducted his organization um, in the view of his followers and some of the ways that we see some Christian organizations conduct themselves. Now, you know, <laughs> oh, like, yeah, I, would, I, oh, no. I would say that we see any modern examples of someone being willing to, you know, organize contract killing or anything like that. Um, but, you know, when you get to the place where your voice starts to uh, exceed the control that a certain organization or denomination can have over you, there's consequences. And that was oh, yeah, a reflection that I took away.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, this was something that was very interesting that I was hoping that somebody would point out. They kept talking about at the beginning, I think it was like during episode one where Elijah kept saying, you know, don't lay a hand on Malcolm. Don't lay a hand on Malcolm. Don't lay a hand on Malcolm. Right. There was also, on the other hand, people who deserve the who 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 basically do what Malcolm has done deserve death, right? So there was sort of this double speak, and one of the things that just kept like going through my mind is when you have the power that Elijah Muhammad has, and and you basically say that I'm a messenger for God, Malcolm is my number one enemy. You don't have to say kill Malcolm. Right, these these this this guy is is not right, an idiot, right? Right. Um, yep. He recognized that, you know. I, I I I'm I'm a closet conspiracy theorist, uh, meaning <laughs> that I I have I have them in my mind, but I don't really talk about them out loud because you know I think if it's if you have conspiracy without proof is basically gossip. I definitely, when people say this is impossible because this didn't happen, and I'm just always like, listen, you don't really understand power. And there was one in particular where I was trying to explain to somebody that if you're a billionaire and you have all of this money, you don't have to sign a contract and tell somebody, hey, go and do X or go and do, like you can just put it out there as if, you know, this happened this would be you know probably good better for everybody and there's that one shady dude on your on your team who will basically take that as a wink wink to go and do it Mm -hmm. right because he Mm -hmm. knows that you know now i'm not saying anybody should do this right you can say that all you want i'm just saying that you know if this were to happen you know by accident this this would actually be a good thing Right. Mm-hmm. There's there's ways in which when you have money and you have people who are looking to get into your good graces or who are looking to you to try to please you. There are things that they will do that they know will make your life easier. Right. There are things that they'll be willing to do that they think will make your life easier. And that's that's like multiplied when the individual is not just the, the money bag. Right. But they're also a religious figure they presented themselves as a religious figure. Yeah. So Jesus is, is an example of how this is meant because Peter was condemned before. Right. He took out the Mm -hmm. sword and and told Mm -hmm. not to do that. And he was condemned after. Right. And then Jesus fixed what it was that happened. Right. By healing, Mm -hmm. by healing the soldier's ear. Right. To show Peter, this wasn't a wink, wink situation. Right. 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 I don't need you to protect me. Right, I told you to put your sword up. I told right. you that I didn't need you. Yeah. Like I got a, I got a legion of angels, yeah. right, who can come down yeah. and handle this for me right now. But I think sometimes when it comes to power, one of the things I, I mentioned to my wife uh, a while while back is when you have power, you have to be explicit and you have to and you have to repeat explicitly explicitly what it is that you want and don't want you you don't have the the you don't have the ability or you don't have the convenience to assume that people understand what you're saying right yeah you you, yeah. you don't have you don't have the convenience of being vague you have exactly. to be clear in yes. what it is that you want and don't want yes but Power, powerful people know that all they need to protect them is plausible deniability.
2: Yes, yes.
0: And they and they use this all the time. Somebody Mm -hmm. once told us that they didn't send us something, they didn't let us know something uh, was going to happen because they wanted us wanted to give us plausible deniability. And I'm just like, Mm -hmm. that's see, there it is right there.
2: Yeah, bro. Yeah, yeah. But but true, a true just. Uh, form of using power or I, I guess I would say a form of using power that is baked in uh, integrity or it is it is saturated in integrity actually doesn't avoid accountability or responsibility to use power the right way and so they, when they you, ask
0: questions they're proactive 100%. not reactive
2: hundred percent. Yeah. You're going to, I mean, it's not about avoiding a, uh, some sort of penalty. It's about mm-hmm. saying, well, listen, I'm going to take responsibility for everything that comes with this, you know? And even if they're in the Elijah Muhammad's case, even if there's some sort of internal revolt in this stance that I take, because it could be said that there were people who felt like Malcolm needed to die, regardless of, Elijah, what Elijah Muhammad said, but they should fear retribution from their leader. You know if that happens, 100. And instead, what we observe, he doubled down. He doubled down, and and there and to this and use Malcolm's
0: like, words, use Malcolm's words against them. He he basically yep. perpetuated the same narrative, which was a yep. lie that had been perpetuated about Malcolm. He says Malcolm was basically pro-violence. And Mm -hmm. he experienced the result. I was like, this is the same thing that Malcolm said about Kennedy uh, during, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, during Kennedy's death, chickens coming home to roost. And he basically took Malcolm's words and tried to use them against him.
2: Crazy. Especially knowing that the assassins were from within the circles that of course he had control over. And, you know, it's just, it was despicable to see it play out. And, And again, like we can't just sit here and act like this is, These are scenarios that played out long ago and people have grown and matured over time. Their consciences were were, um, influential and made these folks regret what they did, you know, or made these individual locations of wherever the the folks who were involved were literally worshiping, and serving, like, you know, so there's locations (laughs) that still were preserved mosques that were were you know still housing folks who were actively involved or knew who was actively involved. And the power structure remained to this day to say, oh yeah, um, we're going to continue to conceal those identities or we're going to continue to justify those actions and essentially say that Malcolm brought this on himself. Yeah, 100%. 100%. And I'm just and, well, it, like, all, all the all wow. the types
0: of manipulations, right? I mean, the things that were said in defense of Elijah Muhammad and the Nation, things like Malcolm. What was one of the things that I heard? Oh, yeah, this guy gave Malcolm, made Malcolm everything that he was. Yeah, man. Right, and then he turned yeah. his back. He's like, he doesn't care for for over some over some women. I think was one. Of the, I'm I'm not sure if that was one of the quotes. I think it was, but over yeah, what man. some women said, like it, it was basically like. Like, how are you going to turn, yeah. like, this This sort of diehard loyalty, like, he gave yeah. you all of this, and then you're just going to go and turn your back on him.
2: And that's and what's fascinating, is, is yeah. to see how deep it goes into the perspective of, of someone from the inside, you know, because people were just viewing the, the details of face value. You know, you and I, we said, oh, of course this is wrong, this is not just, this is something someone should answer for, but from the perspective mm-hmm. of those inside to this day that ideology holds up.
0: Right. That was that was the part that got me. Like in the same city in Newark there's a Malcolm there's a high school named after Malcolm X. And but yep, in the yep. same place most of the kids don't know that the killers came out of Newark even though you got Friends. Malcolm graffiti all over all over the community. They don't know that the guy who actually mm-hmm. pulled the trigger was he was in a Cory Booker campaign ad, bro.
2: That was crazy. (laughs) Like, you know. My my mouth was was just on the floor. (laughs) Bro. And and again, everybody in the neighborhood knew him. You know, the, the brother who literally was doing the investigative work throughout this entire series was warned multiple times. You don't need to pursue this. You don't need to go down this path. Let that go. So there was, it was an active protection mechanism, and then (laughs) Cory Booker unknowingly was was you know used as a a version of protection against this guy because now he had cultivated a different image later in life. The, Mm The the um the shooter or the alleged shooter had cultivated a different image of himself in the community and i mean man they had actual footage of the guy in his address you know i thought the the series was building up and for those who are listening they they had actually identified a person who pulled the close range trigger to kill yeah. malcolm x
0: and and talmage um, and, and this was basically consistent with Talmadge hayers that he was one of the guy william x was one of the guy he named as cool. one of the guy now Listen, when Talmadge did this, he signed an affidavit David. This was 12 years after the fact. He had been adamant that the two guys who were actually arrested were not uh, his co-conspirators. And essentially from my vantage point, this this brother had nothing to lie about. He had no reason to lie mm-hmm. to call these guys names years later. Why why would he why he what he, he essentially want to take two guys who were innocent? And and then put Four other guys, or yeah, three other guys, and make them if, if they were innocent. Now all of a sudden, put them under fire. Yep. Like, why would he want yep. to replace two innocent guys with three other innocent guys? It it's, it doesn't make any sense.
2: And, and another and, thing, oh, go ahead. Go ahead.
0: Yep. Oh, and I was just about the last part. Part is that when he identifies the guy who could have potentially be William X walking off, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like like that. That got me because I thought that that was like. I was like, wow, like this whole time, like this brother, that guy who actually killed them is like low key
2: walking off. Right. And and he's on camera. The camera called him. That's literally what I was about to say. man. That really blew my mind. He's in the frame. He's in the frame as they're trying to, you know, it looks like they're getting ready to tear Talmadge apart. Talmadge. Yep. Yeah. Like they they look like they were getting ready to tear him apart. But literally, he walks across the frame. Yep. and out of sight. And you know for for it man, there's a couple of things too, along with that scene like that that bloody scene of Malcolm being shot like that um, at that meeting. it's the palpable fear. I think the documentary did a a really good job of of just kind of establishing the palpable fear and concern for his own life that Malcolm could have as he's mm-hmm. getting ready to walk up to that pul- that podium you yeah. know all of the factors involved in that particular meeting and that event told the story that Malcolm was in danger yeah. you know and he was seeing the details unfold right in front of him he was seeing the lack of security he was preparing it felt like they they presented a picture of himself a picture of Malcolm preparing to die yeah. you know in in his own mind like psychologically preparing for this to be the end. but he still did the meeting because any other person that you would you would observe in that circumstance and say all right cancel the meeting cancel the event we're not doing this today there's too many security threats here. Mm-hmm. but in 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 his mind he still had to go forward with this. and i mean i'm telling you man there there are people who could could say you know you go too far and and trying to acknowledge these parallelisms between figures like Malcolm X and and a, and a person like Jesus Christ, but this this idea that you're you're actually preparing yourself to die, you know what I'm saying? And I'm not saying that he is God in the flesh. Malcolm's not God in the flesh. He is not even a Christian, a follower of Christ, as far as what we know but this this imagery of when you have a sense that your death is before you and what that may do to you psychologically we can observe the same thing with dr king it's it's a real palpable emotion that you connect with to see somebody leading up to the final moments of their life actually prepared to die you know and and it was it was powerful how they compiled the the series of events. Um, that that ultimately le- led to that outcome. Um, yeah. So I wanted to also, you know hear from you just to to reinforce the involvement of you know, the NYPD or the FBI. you know, did, did any of that surprise you as far as their involvement and, and ultimately, you know, <laughs> in, in the actual moments where they could have provided protection versus even the moments leading up, to his assassination did any of that surprise you as far as how that unfolded or or you know their involvement or lack of involvement up to that point i think
0: i was surprised by the candor of one of the like the oldest officer Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. when he talked about basically i offered it i offered him something that i knew he wasn't going to take and Mm -hmm. i didn't want him to take it in the first place Mm -hmm. that that protection so he you know he was basically saying you know I, I, I either I did or I could have offered Malcolm protection. I knew Malcolm wasn't going to take that protection. I could say face, put it on paper, say that we offered him, even though I was actually glad and knew that he was going to say no to the protection. Mm-hmm. That type of candor, uh, I, I actually appreciated it in retrospect because it seemed to me that that guy, different from the other investigator that was involved, while he was 100 percent complicit. He was mm-hmm. also honest about how he was complicit during that time, because of how he viewed Malcolm as a threat to the culture. Mm-hmm. When when Malcolm really wasn't a, Malcolm was simply a threat to the comfort of white people. Mm-hmm. Right. That's Straight that's up. like like when you're looking at the documentary, uh, how many times did the Nation of Islam bomb uh, or assassinate anybody? But then you look about. You look at. I mean, I want. I would have to wonder, like, how much was the Ku Klux Klan being investigated and monitored by the FBI?
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, right, during this time? They were. They right? were infiltrated by the the Ku Klux Klan. Infiltrated these systems. You right, know, and think... they could because they were white. Yeah.
0: Right. Yep. So, yes. so the 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 crazy part is that these these were black people who were simply wanting. Civil rights, equal rights, and wanted to say, "Hey, you should not be able to commit violence against our people uh, without consequences." Yeah, and they were viewed as a national threat as a result of this.
2: Yeah, it's so telling to, I guess, look back at the condition of American society. You know, obviously in. One of its more hostile periods, open um, hostility that is being expressed and, and ultimately visited upon the lives of Black people in this country. And, and then years later, you know, see some of the same tactics and caricatures painted about you know voices in the Black community that are that are actually trying to lift up these issues as a means for accountability and change, social change to say, like, listen. We're not talking about trying to um, access the 1% of wealth for all Black Americans in this country. We're just trying to seek some some version of equity and and equality in the normal conditions of society, in the, the regular conditions or functions of society, that disparities are clearly identified in, and ultimately, we need to address the disparities for what they are. So when, when you do that in the eyes of, of some, uh, and I would say just the power structure of white supremacy and in, in the way that it continues to apply in our society, that's seen as an unreasonable request. It's, it's seen as an un-American request. It's seen as, as something that, that actually upends the spirit and the narrative of this country. And those kinds of voices must be silenced those kinds of voices must be marginalized. Those kinds of voices must uh, lose credibility in some way, because they are they are actually forces that are attacking the fabric of American society. That's mm-hmm. the perception. And, yep. and it's like, wow, man, like just to seek, you know, some level of equal footing or, or equitable outcomes mm-hmm. is to do violence on the heart of what this country's built on. You know, like I don't, I. It still blows my mind to this day because that attitude still exists and permeates in places of power today.
0: One hundred percent, and it's and this is not something that is like I see this all the time, and I think we're experiencing this right now, even in evangelical institutions, and it's becoming more and more clear that power is oftentimes protected Mm -hmm. when when the uh, a biblical view of of power is that power should be shared, right? Not mm-hmm. hoarded. The Bible talks about like giving power, right? I will mm-hmm. give you power. And and so as, as I'm looking at how things went down with with Malcolm, whether it was the FBI, whether it was the NYPD, whether it was the Nation of Islam, there is an obsession with hoarding power uh, mm-hmm. and keeping power and protecting power. And the saddest part is how similar what we're seeing play out then also plays out in much of evangelicalism uh, today. Mm-hmm. And it's something that is is oftentimes overlooked or unnoticed. And really the only time this is actually addressed is five, 10 years after the fact when the person has been revealed to everybody as a villain right Mm -hmm. but because of the connections and because of the relationships when it's actually happening um and when the victims are crying out for help nobody really says anything
1: yeah right so so mark
0: driscoll is a perfect example of that and you know i've said this before i'll say it again i love mike cosper i love the work that he's doing on that documentary Mm -hmm. uh Mm -hmm. i'm glad he finally has the resources to tell these types of stories But at the same time, I'm also disappointed because this was common knowledge in Hmm. Seattle. I mean, I I remember I was got to know a young lady who was from the Seattle area, and she didn't quite have the words to articulate it, but it was clear to her that something was very, very, very wrong with what was going on at Mars Hill, when you Hmm. know us across on the other side of the United States thought that he was the best thing since sliced bread for you know Reformed Evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. And, and, and he had been discipling and influencing guys from afar, but then you start to meet these guys in person and which I had the opportunity to rub shoulders, not necessarily with Mark Driscoll, but different guys who kind of ran in some of those circles who were higher ups. And you Mm -hmm. begin to see that, no, they, they, something smells a little funny even when you get up close. Mm -hmm. And there's a difference between the guys who are humble servant leaders and the guys who are power hungry. Yeah. There's a different swagger that they have about them. One of the yeah. things I, w- I wanted to talk about, Taylor, before we wrapped up, is Sister Betty.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And the effects that this had on her. Now, one of the things I found I f- I found that was interesting was, as this brother, Brother Muhammad, Abdul Ra- 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 Rahman Muhammad, the, the historian, the person behind the documentary, is trying to get these brothers in the new mo- Mosque, to see that this guy, William X, should have been held accountable. Right. They come up with all these justifications, what's done is done in the past and ain't gonna make anybody's life better. But they mm-hmm. completely overlooked the fact that two brothers went to jail for something that they did not do. So they basically were that this was a justice system where this happened all the time to black people. And the one time where they actually could have done something about it, right? They stood mm-hmm. by and let these brothers stay in jail for. It several years. I mean, I think actually when when Talmadge came out and gave up the names of the real uh, assassins, these brothers were still in jail. I think they spent something like 20 years in jail. Both of them eventually got out. And then also how Betty and her girls and how this had impacted their family had been completely
2: overlooked. 1,000%. I mean, because as to your point, the killers were still at large. So They could have been in danger, literal danger, um, if if she started to express some of the things that she saw, because, I mean, she was privy to the things that Malcolm was going through. Mm -hmm. You know, you think of what it means to be a wife of a husband (laughs) in that kind of a circumstance. He doesn't have very many sounding boards, let alone the phone calls that she's getting, you know, with threats and all that stuff. Malcolm may have been sharing with her extensive details of what he was uncovering and ultimately trying to parse through decisions he was going to make in light of the information he had. And so she could have been looked at as a threat in a similar vein to Malcolm himself. And she's got three young girls or uh, three or four young girls to raise Mm -hmm. at that moment like you know so she's essentially you know if I were to make some sort of parallel um, in this situation she's like a mobster capo's wife in this sense you know a capo gets killed and the wife remains now is the rest of the organization going to protect her and her family or is she then just kind of walking around with a death certificate based on what she chooses to reveal or conceal. Mm -hmm. And of course, nobody else is going to consider that, particularly as it relates to the Black woman's um, state in society or status in society. And I'll say for me personally, I'd like to see Betty lifted up in the same veins of courage and social significance as Coretta Scott King. Mm -hmm. Because she had she faced incredible pressure she 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 faced a, a an even more negative perception of you know who she was and and what her family represented than coretta even did in some sense like martin to me was more yeah. he was he was more polarizing but there was kind of a d- defined sense of support and community around dr king versus malcolm who essentially was ostracized right and He was only relying on a few close friends for protection and support. So she was, you know, Betty was just out there and she was still in the position to reinforce what her husband stood for and to care for her kids. Yep. So I think you know that's incredible courage in the face of fire and in the face of danger. She should be held in high regard for the way she even conducted herself. And I don't know if it was a state of shock, but like the immediate aftermath and seeing her interview, she displayed oh incredible composure, you know, like she could have just cussed everybody out in the room. And I would have been like, I would have been satisfied. Like, yeah. do, you, do you understand what this
1: woman has what She's been going through? To,
0: yeah. Cause I, I, you know, that was the one where I told you, I was just screaming at the TV, like in tears, like leave her alone because the reporters kept like, in a very insensitive way, just kept asking her questions, not like asking her questions that could have got her killed. Yeah. And, and she's quiet the whole time. And I think there's only one question that she actually responded to. And I'm talking about like, they were ask her a question. There'd be five seconds of silence. They're asking her another question. There'd be another five seconds. And they just kept on and probably about the fifth or sixth question, like, she finally started to talk and I, and, and, but I could just tell, man, that she was overwhelmed because yeah, her man. bodies, I don't, I don't even know if, if during this interview, if her husband had been buried yet.
2: Yeah, man. And yeah.
0: I was just like, leave her
2: alone. It, it speaks to how black people were dehumanized at the time, you know, because you couldn't see her in that way. You know, like she literally had just watched her husband brutally murdered and was at his side as he bled out.
0: And and most of and most most people probably thought that he got what he deserved.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And 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 again, at the top of the priorities of this news reporter was to just get the story, you know, mm-hmm. get the scoop, you know, yep. Present this this polarizing news item out to the public. Forget this, this, the feelings of this person, forget the the circumstances surrounding this scenario, no, no. and to me that's dehumanizing. That's to say, yeah. like you know, we don't we don't view black people as people with emotion or people with the capacity for for sorrow and grief. You know, this is the circumstances of society that black people have had to endure, yeah. where tragedy and violent outcomes are the norm. And yet you still have to have the fortitude to stand up and look brave and courageous and gather your thoughts and, and speak with clarity. And, and you can't become undone, you know, for the, for the sake of the entire community's plight, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that, I mean, I'm telling you, man, that resonates today. You know what I mean? Like you can't truly display the sense of emotion that you feel about a particular scenario for fear of being marginalized as an angry black man or an angry black woman, yep. you know? So she's carrying all of that and somehow not just completely breaking down. I mean, man, like that 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 was an amazing observation, but to your point, it's infuriating at the same time.
0: Yeah, yeah it was heartbreaking to watch her go through that and to think about, just all her and those girls had to had to go through. I, I I just I just can't imagine what that was like. Going back to the Newark situation, and I didn't really answer this. So there's common knowledge, right, in Newark of who was the trigger man. So while America yep. is wondering, yep. the people in Newark already knew. And then the on the yep. other side of this, and 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 like people from the government attended this man's funeral, like state senator, I think, or lieutenant governor. Uh, Of New Jersey attended uh, William X's funeral. Like, all right, but then on the other hand, the FBI knew the entire time there was no speculation. The FBI actually had a clear description of William X that neither of the men that they arrested fit, and the FBI let it slide. They had it all in their notes. They had a complete profile on this guy.
2: Bro, this is see, this is a touchy subject for me, man, because I I live in the inner city and this is kind of like the dynamic of, of snitching, you know, mm-hmm. like th- the knowledge is common. A lot of people know what's going on. We know who's mm-hmm. perpetuating it's, it's a code of silence, you know, for the sake of self-preservation in some, in some sense. But the whole idea around snitching is presented as like this honorable sacrifice. We are, even the folks who went to jail, like you said, for decades, they're not going to tell. You know, they're they're going to, for the sake of whatever the cause is or the perception is, we're not going to tell anything. And that code is reinforced to this day. And I know for a fact that there are folks within local law enforcement who are actually informed as to what's going on, who the perpetrators are, but they're in some way trying to manage the social dynamics of the situation and make calculated decisions of who to arrest and who not to arrest Mm -hmm. because of the aftermath associated with making such arrests. Mm -mm. So, And and, I mean, this goes back to your conspiracy theory. This is stuff that, you know, is evidence-based. There is evidence to be investigated, but it's at risk of a larger picture of how you view a certain social dynamic, a certain portion of a city or a neighborhood right. And, right. and the conditions that continue to, to, to reinstitute or reinforce order in a certain community or social circumstance. Yep. So you had all these people making a business decision to say, just so we can keep things under control, we're not going to reveal these details. And a person is publicly martyred. Uh, I'm t- a, a poor man with a voice is publicly martyred. So things can go back to peace. Because he was going to cause too much disruption. Yep. And that's, that's, what's, that's what I take away from the, the exaltation or even the protection of a William X in light of what was literally proven and known in the community um, about his actions.
0: So, the last episode of the miniseries, they're interviewing uh, one of the initial. Alleged gunman who who turned out. I mean, I think it's it's pretty much commonly accepted that these two brothers were innocent. One of them is still alive, and you know they're talking about the effects that this has had on his family, with his kids, uh, and all of this. And you know, this was even an individual that the reason why he was so easy for them to pinpoint as one of the gunmen and get him tried and convicted was because. He was at the time an enemy of uh, Malcolm X. Uh, The interviewer, uh, Abdur Rahman, Muhammad asked him, you know, say, hey, so they got this, this basically this law, or this bill that was, I think it was from President Obama's administration that essentially Mm -hmm. goes back and investigate the wrongful convictions of individuals who have spent time in prison and to try to basically clear their names. And he was like, I want you to sign this. The brother just basically goes, he's like, I mean, for me, to be honest, that don't mean much to me. He's like, you know, I'll cooperate and all that. He's like, but well, I don't trust him. And, you know, one of the things that I'm just like, if anybody like can say that, that they don't have any faith in the American justice system, it's that brother right there. I was mourning the fact that he was able to say that and he had every reason to say what he said. Mm-hmm. and and you and you can't really argue with them. There are some people that you can argue with and you might even feel tempted to argue with, but when when that brother right there because he's looking at the FBI knew I didn't do it, yeah, and they stood by and watched yep they they yep. they I was in a different part of the town when it happened. Mm-hmm. People in my own community knew I didn't do it, and they said nothing mm. because you know he wasn't he definitely wasn't one of the ones. You know, he he's I remember at one point when they were interviewing him, he goes, you know, these guys claimed that they were true believers, but they let one of their brothers sit in prison for something that they did mm-hmm. for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And and that that lack of trust trust and that lack of faith and in institutions and, and people in power resonated with me because I'm because again, the one th- Malcolm was killed. Because of his integrity. yeah. And integrity is the most dangerous virtue that you can have in America or in places of power where power is hoarded and protected. Mm -hmm. Integrity is one of the most dangerous things that you can have because integrity will put a target on your back every single Mm -hmm. time
2: when you're dealing Mm -hmm. in a criminal Mm -hmm. game. Facts, bro. Sobering to even think about that. But you're right. That's
0: all I got. I'm sure there's more. There's so much more that I was thinking through <laughs> as I was observing. Just how brainwashed people yeah. still were. How how mm-hmm. they you know tried to expect like absolute loyalty. How they uh, minimized. What was the what was um, Muhammad's uh, secretary? The old older older brother who's still oh, living yeah. as well. Oh man, he made my skin
2: crawl yeah. every time he talked. Yeah, man. But you know this again. This is the inside view. This is the inside perspective of the organization and the ideology and you know the system of discipleship if you will
0: yep. produced. He he's trying e- to use david he's he trying to use david and uh bathsheba as a justification of elijah muhammad as a prophet
2: you know i mean look, completely man, overlooking
0: the fact that david repented
2: and david was confronted
0: and, and he allowed himself to be confronted as king
2: Yep. It, he submitted. It, it was, his repentance was on was on the backside of the confrontation, you know. Yep. It was you are the man and then he writes Psalm 51, you know, in the in the in the face of that circumstance. So it's I mean man, listen. I am I am not necessarily surprised, you know, like it, this these are things that we can reflect on in our personal experience. We've seen yeah systems of power, you know, work out in, in these ways. I mean, you mentioned the situation with Mars Hill and, um, you know, currently right now, there are large evangelical denominations and organizations under a reckoning right now as to whether or not people at the top of the pyramid, if you want to call it that, are going to answer for ways that they either covered up wrongdoing or that they continue to reinforce Wrong yep.
0: wrongdoing it's sobering because i i can't help but reflect on any ways whether minor or major that i've ever been complicit in protecting power and even in the, you know going back to what you said even though you know it exists mm-hmm. and you know it happens it was something that was just it was different watching mm-hmm. people uphold it even in even in retrospect Because hindsight is supposed to be 2020. This is a perfect example of what I have been trying to emphasize or point out as I have, and what I've reflected on about power. Um, Power, the solution to the corruption of power or the misuse and abuse of power is not simply the transfer of power. Mm -hmm. Right? It's a proper understanding of the stewardship of power. Mm -hmm. Because what is clear in this documentary, from this documentary, is that if the nation of Islam, if a transfer of power had been taking place and that power was transferred from white people to the nation of Islam, we wouldn't be in a better situation. It wouldn't have even meant a better situation for black people, right? So to, to understand like how, cause, cause they essentially did the same thing that white Southerners do, that, the, that their oppressors were currently doing. You know, think about how people might talk about somebody who it, it was discovered to be a known Klansman now and today, and he's a respectable businessman, you know, in Jackson, Mississippi, or in Birmingham, right? But he was complicit and involved in a, a murder or a crime that took place fifty years ago, right? And somebody well, we, started we bumping that.
2: around. They, yeah, we we ha- that. of course we have it. That's we, what I'm saying. We, we, well, I mean Emmett Till is the example that I think of immediately there, the the woman who essentially was the person or at least the narrative was she was the woman that Emmett Till whistled at supposedly
0: on her deathbed right, right. she finally she finally said something right she finally uh, admitted that he didn't do anything basically that the story was yep. made up but i but i think that even, even to even just talk about the events of the past is sort of taboo. And I'm mm-hmm. looking at some of these guys, I'm looking at the ages of these guys who were a part of the nation of Islam. And I think about, uh, I'm like, some of these guys are kind of young to have been alive and been involved and they have the knowledge that they have. And then it immediately comes with me. I was like, wait, there's a lot of people who were like in some of those like civil rights videos and the- who are still walking around in Jackson are probably like esteemed people. Hundred percent right. in, in in Jackson in Birmingham in Georgia, and have have never admitted that they were participants. Everybody talks about the situation as if as if it was just happening around them, but to try to dig any of that up, especially if they were complicit in something in an actual crime, yeah, right? There's there's social social things that they could have done that would have been immoral but not necessarily illegal, right? And then there are other other individuals who are involved in very much illegal stuff that has had devastating effects on families for years. But when I look at this Newark mosque and I look at much of the sort of white Southern culture, I I don't see a big difference, man, between these old heads because they don't it seems like they don't understand. But they would. But you but you call the white man, the devil, you know that like he's a devil, but you're essentially embodying the same thing that they have done to keep your people oppressed and see now, right now, now it's now working for
2: you you're entering into a future episode that you we know we're gonna have to do So I, <laughs> <laughs> I I love that we're here and this is why we do this podcast um, but I want to definitely put a pin right there encourage everybody to watch the documentary. All of our listeners, if you haven't watched it already, this is year old, this is a year old now, year plus. Yeah. And watch this, you know, just kind of become educated. If if nothing else, become educated and understand what happened and some of these circumstances that affect even the, the community today. And what you just touched on, Phil, man, I want to I want to take some time to think and process how we can reapproach this subject matter. And, and have the conversation we need to have around
0: it. Well, we're going to do another bonus episode on Blood Brothers, the yep, most recent yep. one that just came out about Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X's relationship, which is also a very, very interesting dialogue. I'm very much looking forward to that conversation because there's a lot yeah, that was in. And, and that was much shorter too. Yeah. And then I just feel like we have to... This may be a bonus episode for another season after another season, but we got to talk about uh, the documentary. I'm not your Negro based on James Baldwin's yeah.
2: unfinished book. That
0: one, yeah, man, I'm, that one's whew. good.
1: It
2: is. It's heavy too. It's, yep. it's, um, but it's good. I mean, I think, and Ball, you know, Ball, Baldwin is brilliant. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. And I mean, this is, these are the kinds of things that, you know, you can, you can literally parallel with what we're wrestling with in society today. And yep. that's, you know, ultimately what makes it so profound and prophetic.
0: All right, Taylor, it was, it was good talking to you, bro. I enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to the uh, next bonus episode that we we'll do on this one.
2: Likewise, man. Until then.
0: Peace. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in for this particular episode of make it plain. This is a very, very special bonus episode. Um, and we're super excited that you guys are still listening and still rocking with us. We have a quick update uh, regarding this documentary that we discussed, Who Killed Malcolm X. Following the release of this documentary, the Manhattan District Attorney announced that the District Attorney's Office will begin a preliminary review of the investigation into Malcolm X's murder in order to decide whether the case should be reopened and on November 17, and at the time of this recording, this is yesterday, 2021, November 17, 2021, the Manhattan District Attorney announced that the convictions of Muhammad A. Aziz and Khalil Islam, who both served 20 years in prison for the murder of Malcolm X, would be thrown out. The New York Times uh, released an article that many of you probably came across Um And the headline read, the two men convicted of killing Malcolm X will be exonerated after decades. The 1966 convictions of the two men are expected to be thrown out after a lengthy investigation validating long-held doubts about who killed the civil rights leader. So again, thank you guys for listening. Glad we got a chance to discuss this and glad that before we even got a chance to release the episode, the two men. Had already been uh, exonerated or are expected to be exonerated so again thank you guys so much for listening and I hope this update sort of encourages you are still sad uh, because they lost a lot of time and there's a really uh, interesting article uh, at the New York Times uh, that really talks about everything that happened and how these men's lives were affected as a result of this injustice. Taylor and I will probably be revisiting this topic later on but We appreciate you guys tuning in for this bonus episode, and we will see you guys again soon.
1: At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more,